Welcome back to the Eric Anders Lang Show, everybody. You heard that first. That's the sound of your ball going into the hole. Thanks to Lab Golf. Had a great week last week hanging out with Sam Hahn and the entire crew of elves at Emerald Valley Golf Club in outside Eugene. I can't remember. Crestwall. Crestwall, Oregon, where every putter is made within 40 miles of the ninth green. I'm telling you, the science is going to change the industry. Labgolf.com, or you can go to randomgolfclub.com slash lab. And if that's not there, try again the next day. I was about to say. <laughs> we're, we're building a cool new landing page that's going to show all of the highlights of Lab in our content. It's going to have a special discount available to our pro members. If you're not a pro member yet, head over to randomgolfclub.com slash membership. Pretty sure that's what the URL is. Thanks, Lab, for allowing us to make awesome content and use Cool equipment to lower our scores. You're a better putter than you think. This is a, uh, and thanks to Sam as always, this is a, an interesting episode. You you told me we were recording this right before we did it. And then we well, you had, had a day's notice. Maybe I had a day's notice. I put it on the calendar. You put it on the calendar. So maybe yeah. I should have read the calendar. But I did write on the calendar. I said mystery podcast. You did say, uh, you know, I, I was wondering if it was going to be LL Cool J. I don't know who it was going to be. He plays with golf. Um, yeah, Rafa's been a friend of mine, like a like a business friend and a friend and a mentor for uh, the better part of like a year and a half now. And, you know, like it's really cool to meet someone who's just like flying the plane of life. Yeah, he lives uh, by the seat of his pants in some ways. In other ways, he's very, very prepared. He's a, a serial entrepreneur, a gearhead, yeah. a lover of golf, and... We talked in this podcast some more about near golf experiences. We sure did. Which we've been into recently, and he had this incredible story about Switzerland. We talked about cars. Yep. And we talked about um, really really what it takes to, to truly believe in yourself and make that big bet on yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think the most interesting thing about Rafa is that he manifested his life. He created what he wanted you know he tells a story about when he was younger you know his parents are very poor from el salvador moved, spent all of their money on coming to america and while they were like traditionally educated and had careers in el salvador when they came to america they decided to take whatever job they could and rafa has a story about the car breaking down the family car breaking down on the way to school and he was like i never want my car to ever break down cut to you know multi-millionaire um, now just living his best life, kind of developing a car racing club, which supports his habit of wanting to race cars. And even the story of how he got into car racing reminded me a lot of how I got into golf. And it was just this like black and white moment where I had my life up until that day. And then I had my life after that day. It was kind of this, um, you know, rebirth moment of interest. And anyway, really interesting guy, um, very humble, very down to earth, very real, and um, I look forward to sharing his story with you all. So thanks for tuning in today. Welcome to the show, Rafa. Hi. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Rafa. How are you feeling? I feel great. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for having me. But how do you feel after, you know, we just, we just took a ketone IQ 10 minutes ago. Did yeah. you notice it? I don't know if I noticed it yet because I, I ate a little bit of food with it and like I was already kind of feeling down. So yeah. it, it's probably kicking in for sure. Okay. Well, if you ever during the show, it hits you. I want to know. All right. Um, so like it is kind of hard to introduce you. Do you, ever, do you run into that ever? Um, I 
find difficulty like introducing myself i guess <laughs> like like what do you do i'm like well i do a lot of things yeah. uh you know i primarily do this uh, and like at least that's my career so i generally try to introduce myself as like my profession right which you know is natural gas trading like i'm an energy trader and that's what i've done my career and so like that's usually the way that i say in simple terms i trade energy commodities trader and i've invested in operate some companies that i've you know gotten into but is it is it fair to say that like if you're at a bar and someone comes up to you and they're like, what do you do? What they might really be asking you is, what do you want to talk about? Right. Is, is energy trading what you want to talk about? Um, it depends on, I would say, it depends on the setting. Um, generally, these days, most people, you know, I want to talk about some of the companies and brands and things that I'm supporting and, and building. Uh, it's just, I would say, more... Um, conversational for the general public that they can really relate um, if I am in a work setting or you know around people that I think can talk more technical markets um, then I do that I, I think there's a lot of times when I introduce myself as an energy trader and then someone just speaks to like prices and you know it, one thing that is often confused with by the way I'm starting to feel it <laughs> that was uh, faster than I thought it was going to be. Like literally, you feel it, right? Uh, like yeah. Like what does it feel like? It, it's hard to it's hard to explain because it's not a jitter. Yeah. But like it, it's like feels something. Yeah. yeah. It's like, like a deep level. It's almost like a telephoto lens. Yeah. You know, like it's just like. Zzz. Yeah. Like I just talking now, I can feel my like my brain and everything's just kind of starting to sense differently. Yeah. I just realized as someone who, who trades in these markets, when he said it tastes like gasoline, we say that, but I feel like we just say it. Yeah. He knows what gasoline tastes like. What, actually, that's a really funny parallel is that because I know you from cars right. and car racing. Yep. And we both have a love of automobiles. Their artworks. Ralph Lauren said a car is the most beautiful piece of art that could ever be made. You can drive it. You can appreciate it. It's got history. But like, but like, what's funny is you trade oil and gas. That was the beginning of your story or the middle Yep. And then now it's like you use that to fuel literally your your passion now, passion, which yeah. is cars. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of people, one of the things I was uh, going to say is when I tell people, like, I trade natural gas, you know, people start talking about prices and yeah. how expensive it is to pump the car. And it's like, well, that's gasoline, not natural gas. Very different. And so then, you know, one of the things that I learned about the industry is, like, what it all takes to get to your house, what it all takes to get to the pump. And that's one of the things that most people, I think, miss. And so it's a good conversation to teach and tell someone about the infrastructure more so than the markets because it's kind of tough to have a, a you know, to chop it up with someone about markets and what's driving and, you know, the very specifics of what makes the market sort of like flow and, and you know, the intricacy parts of the market when someone's not in it. But when you can relate to someone, you know, like say, for example, you order something on Amazon and someone has to actually like package it, put a tick, you know, a tag on it, get it into a truck, drive it to your house, knock on your door, drop it off. Well, that all that happens with every commodity, with every product. And yeah. so, from an energy standpoint, we turn the light switch, and you don't think about like what it actually took for that bulb to turn on, like all the infrastructure behind it. You know, natural gas gets burnt by a power plant that uses gas to heat water to boil it or whatever to like turn a turbine that then with that energy generates electricity that then gets transmitted onto like a distribution center that then gets transmitted to your house. And like that light switch involves probably thousands of people's jobs involved in the process. 
And this is crazy, right? So like those type of conversations, I think, are some of the conversation starters that I do when I talk about my job and what I do. More so of like what I think market's going to do directionally right. outside of today's prices are higher than they were historically or lower. The you know, industry is struggling. Uh, it's difficult to have a meaningful conversation with someone about the markets who isn't in the market. Interesting. Because it's, yeah, okay, wait. So going back, there's so many things you just said. The first thing I thought of is like, you know, I've, I've studied Buddhism to some extent. And there is frequently this conversation around interconnectedness, around like, one of the first lessons I got was this Buddhist teacher was like, look at this piece of paper. Do you, do you tell me what's in the piece of paper? And I was like, um, you know, like wood. And he was like, good. What else? And I was like, um, I don't know. And he was like, do you see the cloud that like rained on the forest to grow the tree? Yep. And I was like, whoa. And then he was like, do you see the, do you see the, the person who cut the tree down and put it into the, the, the pulp thing, you know, and like, and like all of these steps that we all like take advantage of every day and don't think about, I've never thought about turning on a light switch and following that back. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And he goes back and then, you know, obviously you go back to uh, whether it's a wind farm, whether it's a solar, you know, panel, whether it's gas, coal, or, or other fuels that, you know, we use to generate electricity, uh, hydro, for example, you know, the rain, like talk about the rain, it has to rain for the water to flow into the big ponds that turn the turbines that generate hydroelectrical, you know, power. Um, and so like all those things are things that it's difficult to just have a meaningful conversation about, you know, all the prices too high today. Well, depends. That's like Based, surface level. Yeah, it depends because I understand the supply and demand and I may be actually thinking the prices aren't high enough based <laughs> on where the market is today, based on where you think the market was or whether you know the market was years ago, perhaps it is high, but is it too high? It's just relative to like what the conversation is. Is it too high for the consumer? Possibly. Yeah. Is it too high for the current market conditions? Probably not. You know, like you never know really what, what that is. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, I think when I talk to people as far as like what I do and what I want to talk about is really more about the fun stuff and yeah. cool stuff that I'm working on. When we first met, I remember we went to dinner and you told me an interesting part of your story, which I'd love to talk a little bit about now. You kind of talked about what you talked about was kind of, I think, the root reason why you're not interested in a conversation about the market necessarily, because that's that's not where the that's not a holistic view of of what your job is. Yeah. And you talked about how when you first got into energy trading, you spent two years in the what is it, the transfer station? Uh, we call it a scheduling. So scheduling. It, it's the logistics. It was a, about, about four years in total. Uh, but it's a scheduling is where you're actually scheduling the delivery, the delivery and you know, buys and sales of natural gas. So if I buy gas from you at one location and I sell it to somebody else at a different location, that's the transaction. That's what the trader does. The scheduler actually has to make sure that that gas flows and there's a whole system behind. It's literally like you're buying a subway car to ride on a public track. Yep. It's just it, when I've thought I've thought about it a lot, honestly, since that night, probably more than you would ever expect that I thought about it. Because to me, it just seemed like kind of karate kid, like wax on, wax off. Like you're just you're just kind of in the the like overall like knowledge of it. And it's less about the market and the price. And it's more about how does the shit move around the planet? Yeah. You were literally involved in the interconnectedness of energy. Yeah. Which I'm assuming, I mean, probably has given you a, a, like an advantage. In terms For sure. Of it's, it's a great entry level to understand the market. 
Um, and once you really understand the physical nature and how gas flows, for example, how crude flows or how any of these markets and the energy products sort of interact with one another and um, you can look at a weather forecast and anticipate more or less demand than expected, then you can start putting some trading views there. But understanding the fundamentals of what is the product and how we consume it, how we produce it, how it moves around is you know, having a, that real deep understanding of that market and anticipating market moves based on that view is sort of like why I've been successful. And right. it's just like that deep understanding of it that I can take it down to a granular level where I can explain it to a 12, 14-year-old or whoever that's, you know, an 8-year-old probably don't understand what I'm talking about. But someone that can actually rationalize and make sense of it, being able to take it to that level where it's like that elementary, simple, um, being able to do that and, and explain it, most people couldn't really tell you even what their job is but they're doing it every day and it's just like you know i think that that's where the advantage is is when you have that complete understanding of it yeah you mentioned a 12 or a 14 year old what what was your life like as a 12 or 14 year old so i actually uh, we moved from el salvador to the states right at 12 years old so i, I turned 12 a month after we moved to uh, houston so i've been in houston ever since um at the time i was in middle school and it was obviously challenging just learning a new language, uh, not really having family here. We had a couple of family, uh, like my mom's brother and my dad's sister lived here. Uh, and that's how we actually ended up in the States. But yeah, for us, it was just, you know, we were kids and um, just learning a new language, new culture, you know, adapting to our new state, you know, the, the, you know, living location and everything. So Yeah. Like, what was like the like the the picture of you know you're you're kind of like I, I can't imagine what it's like to move to america right you know what is that like i mean as a kid i was i think that we take a lot of things for granted um you know for us coming from el salvador and seeing um the life difference at least you know even as simple as like what the roads look like what the buildings look like what the houses look like you know how clean things are um, that was like almost like exciting to come and be like, wow, like everything looks so cool here. Uh, but obviously it came with challenges and, you know, kids are tough and, um, you know, our family dynamic was difficult because, you know, my parents didn't make all that great money when they came. They, they were learning the language themselves, um, and took big steps back in their careers and, you know, the jobs that they were doing in the past just to get going here. Um, and, you know, my dad would work night shifts. So that my mom could work the day shift. So then we'd see him a couple of hours during the day when we would go home from school, but then he'd go from, you know, he'd, he'd work from like six to six um, on, on those night shifts on you know, operating machinery when he, like, you know, had never done that kind of manual labor. What was he um, doing in El Salvador? So in El Salvador, he had actually uh, managed, so he, he went, he started going to school. So he was one of 12 or 14 kids. He was the only one that actually started a college education with his older brothers and sisters sort of helping him get to school. And then I think one or two years into college, um, he met my mom and had my sister pretty quick. So then he dropped out of school and he started learning a little bit about electrical engineering, I guess. Um, so he mostly did electrical type of services. Uh, he understood electronics. He understood um, how to like diagnose something that's like say a TV that doesn't work. He'd be able to figure out like how to make it work. Uh, and so he did that to a, like an industrial scale. Um, and 
as we grew older, he was able to save up money to have a small business operation providing transportation services uh, where he had like a small minivan that fit like, you know, 18, 15, 15, 18 people. Um, and they would drive around. So in the States, transportation, like say the metro system, that's all provided by the city. Uh, in El Salvador, it's all privately owned. So all these people own their own individual different size buses. So some people had a bus that looks like a metro. My dad's was like a minivan, right? And you just shove as many people as you can in it. And people would have like their limbs sticking out of the window just to fit more people. And so like, you know, they'd drive around and people would pay to jump, jump in. And there was a route that each car had. Um, so each car, you know, would start at a certain spot and then they'd go around town in this route that they had established that they had. And then they would just collect on the spot where people just cash paid to jump on and then jump off, jump on, jump off. So he, he was doing that uh, when we moved here. Fascinating. Yeah. So from on the electrical side, I see like a similarity between kind of your experience and his experience in terms of like a holistic. OK, like this is how this works with this set of information. I should be able to like guess how to fix it, or in your case, guess how to like win. Yeah, and I think I got that from my dad, the technical uh, seeing things that way. Uh, as a kid, and it's, you know, my dad always did his own old changes, changed his own tires, repaired the car. Like we had some like late nights where I would sit in the bottom of a car with a flashlight, and I'm falling asleep, and he'd be like, you know, point at the flashlight, and I'm like, I'm tired, dad, you know. And but he'd be sitting there mechanically, even like never studied mechanics, never studied how to fix a car or anything. He would just like figure things out. Um, and so I think that that's that element of, you know, my dad's, I guess, technical and figure stuff out standpoint, like has certainly probably, you know, led me into, into being able to figure things out myself. Yeah. What, uh, have they, have they, are they moved here now or where are they? Yeah. Yeah. They live in Houston. Uh, they've been in Houston the whole time with us. Yeah. Are they like, what do they, do they, do, what do they say to you? Do they, cause you've obviously had a tremendous amount of success. Are they, yeah. Do they give you shit? Do they try to keep you humble? Are they like, where's I mean, that? It's, it's a combination of things. Uh, I wouldn't say they try to keep me humble because like I just remain humble. Okay. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that they appreciate the most is that like me as a son hasn't changed from having nothing to having a fortune. Right. Um, and in fact, like I've actually become, probably a better son in some ways because now I have ways to support in the family and, and being able to give back to them and making sure that they're comfortable, that they can do whatever they want with their time. Both of them work for me now. Um, so I took him out of the corporate world and working with somebody else. You know, if they want to come to work, they can. If they don't, they don't. You know, they go on vacation together. Now I have to figure out how to like to cover their roles and stuff like that. So, <laughs> you know, it's just I don't need my parents at this age with, you know, with what I've been able to accomplish thanks to them to like even be working, right? Yeah. But they're relatively, you know, still relatively young. They had us at a young age. So my mom is um, 60 and my dad is 65. Okay. So they're getting up there in age, but they're pretty highly energetic. And like they, you know, dedicated their life to raising us and working with us. So they never developed a hobby. You know, my dad played soccer when we were kids and that was it. And then he had like a knee injury and stopped playing. But he doesn't have a circle of friends. My mom has a couple of girlfriends that she keeps in touch with. But pretty much everything else is them two and it's family. And so if they woke up in the morning for like weeks and weeks and months and had nothing to do, they'd probably be bored and, you know, like probably wouldn't enjoy at least coming to work. And, you know, I work with my mom and she does all of our accounting and a lot of the accounting, a lot of the HR stuff. Cool. And so, you know, she does a payroll, all that. Like I get to see her often. My dad works with my sister in other business, so my sister works for us. 
Um, and so he gets to go to work with my sister all the time. And so, like, at least they're staying involved and active. But I try not to, like, overload them, tell them, like, hey, like, really, I just need you to, like, be happy and help me oversee things, make sure things aren't, you know, falling apart. And having someone that I trust just look over stuff is really all I need. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, it just kind of keeps them busy and they contribute in their own, you know, in their ways. But I try not to, like, give them too much to do. Just, you know, yeah. I, I don't need them working anymore in a sense. What, um, has your dad gotten into cars with you, like racing? Um, no, my dad's never been in a car, so he's, he, he's kind of scared of like heights, scared of like roller coasters, anything like that. He's always been like, that's not for me. Um, and so he's never been in a car yet with me. Um, they appreciate cars. They come to the races, some of the races they've been to, and they're always super nervous. Uh, for you, because you're me, yeah. driving hundreds of miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. So like, cool. like, like you, you would think like a reasonable parent. Uh, yeah. They're excited, and they, uh, I think, you know, they're. I would say like they're probably not surprised that I'm successful with what I do because anything that I choose to do, I generally succeed in if I devote the time to it. Yeah. Uh, and so like, there's things that I know I'm not going to be great at. And so, like, I don't even try it because, like, why waste the energy and try to be good at something that, like, I know I'm not going to be great at? Uh, and so, like, something that I try and I enjoy and I can see myself doing and I de dedicate the time, then generally I've been, you know, somewhat successful at it. And so, right. like, you know, including golf. Like, when I, yeah, I was going to bring up golf right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> and cool. so, like, golf, you know, when I played, I actually took lessons. And I was like, I'm not going to be the guy that shows up and, like, swings and misses again because I had never played golf. I went to an industry, an energy industry event where I signed up for a massage and I didn't want to play golf. And this is like Lake Geneva, one of the golf courses out there. It was like a 70-degree type of day, and I was going to go get a massage. And the rep that was hosting me was like, hey, I didn't see you on the golf sheet. Who are you playing with? I was like, oh, I didn't sign up for golf. I'm, I'm getting my back rubbed, you know? And he was like, no, dude, you have to golf. And I told him, like, I don't golf. And he's like, no, you, you're going to golf. I'm going to put you with this team. And so I went out there first time ever at this like beautiful golf course, beautiful outside with the lake in the background, sun shining off of it. And I'm just like swinging and I hitting the ball the whole time. I enjoyed it and it was actually like a good time. But like for me, it was just like, I don't know that, you know, I'm ever going to go out to the golf course until I know how to hit a ball. Because like it was not embarrassing, but it was just like, this is actually pretty enjoyable. Yeah. Just to be out and about, to walk, to smell the grass and the air and feel the breeze and talk to people and have a drink. And like, it's just such a good networking and like chill sport that I went back and took lessons immediately. Immediately. Like there was second. enough there in that. I mean, I would first round at like in Lake Geneva would be pretty awesome. Yeah. But, but that, you know, that's something we talk about. We talked about that on the podcast the other day, right? Jojo, where it was like that moment where, what did we call it? Uh, who's your Sherpa? Who who leads you? Yeah, or is, it was a near golf experience. Near golf That's experience. That's what we called it. NGE. You know, like near death experience. Yeah, like you probably had that in the car, but like, oof, man, but like the near golf experience is this thing where you like experience the feeling of of whatever golf is going to offer you for the rest of your life, and yeah. that sounds like a cool moment to have it. Yeah, yeah, it was great, and I went home and I went and bought a you know golf set that I didn't know what it was. I went to like <laughs> golf, you know, golf galaxy, and I was like, hey, I've never played golf. I need a Started to say that happened to have a, I didn't even know anything about the brands, right? And so like now I'm like a TaylorMade guy, right? Because the first set I ever had was a TaylorMade that it was they happened to be on sale for like three hundred bucks, right? And it was like an old model or something that they had, and so I bought that set and went out and started working, you know, the grass and eventually, you know, got better to it. I could hit the ball and 
and I could actually. We play. We 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 had a few swings. We haven't played around together, but we had a few swings the other day, and I was kind of like, it was a little annoying. How like <laughs> Why is that? Well, I can tell that you're rough around the edges. You, you don't play a lot of golf these days. No, yeah. But I, like he was still performing. You know I, what I mean? Oh, he just knew how to score. Yeah, like it yeah. was just like he was sort of winning or not losing mm-hmm. for sure. Like you yeah. didn't lose. That's kind of in there, yeah. Yeah, and I was kind of like I could tell like he doesn't play a lot of golf, but he was like, you know, we played closest to the pin, and I, and. Yeah, I mean, it was a little annoying, you know? That's a compliment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I used to play quite a bit. So once I got into it and I started feeling, you know, the competitive nature of, like, I need to break 100. Yeah. I need to break 90. Yeah. You know, I need to break 80. Um, and so then I got to the point where I was, like, 9, 10 handicap, you know? The reason I probably wasn't, the reason I probably wasn't, like, a single handicap was, like, I never practiced. Right. I just made time to go play. Yeah. And then the bad habits, mistakes kind of were there. But I, it was good enough. It was enjoyable. Yeah. I hit a good drive. You know, I hit a bunch of good shots. And then I chunk it twice and put it in the sand, and there goes my round, right? So um, I did that. But, yeah, I, I used to play two, three times a week. And did golf, did golf, like, teach you anything about yourself while you played? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it, it's actually kind of funny because in a lot of things in life, um, you don't really sense that tension, that muscle tension or that stress. But there were several times like on a golf course when you hit a bad shot. And then just the fact that now you have a little frustration, you forget how to completely hit a ball again. <laughs> it's crazy, yeah. right? And so it's like trying to manage those moments. I think that, you know, in golf, it really taught me about like patience and, and keeping your cool, like keeping your head cool. Because in so many other things in life, you know, you can get away with being frustrated and doing something angrily. But in golf, you can't play angry golf. No. The, the minute you tense up a little bit, like you can no longer hit the ball. Yeah. Uh, and so like I learned that from golf for sure. And it, it really taught me about just the delicacy with which you need to treat certain things, right? Yeah. Because just like you can get frustrated in a golf course and holding the club just a little too hard, yeah. now like has a complete impact in the flight of the ball, shape of the ball, whether you hit the ball to begin with. Yeah. Like, you know, showing someone certain frustration or responding pissed off to someone is the equivalent. And then now you potentially ruin that relationship with that person. Whoa. Because like they'll never see you with the same light that they did before you kind of like disrespected them. And it was just like in the moment that you were frustrated, they had nothing to do with it. But like now they're sensitive to like dealing with you, right? Yeah. And so like just those interactions, you know, for sure impact, uh, I think in real life that, you know, things that I picked up in golf for sure. I think about that um, like similar similar vein. I, I've never thought about the idea of like, you know, the way that relates to personal experiences, like just be cool, man. You know, like yeah. don't like take a breath. That's interesting. But I think about it kind of like, um, and, I, and I'm curious to know if this relates to either energy trading or driving, but this idea of like fear, mm-hmm. like if you're on the tee and you're afraid of a certain outcome, you know, like not only will you more likely hit it there, whatever, but like you'll just probably not make a good swing. Yeah. And I've been, you know, as, as you, since you and I have met in the last year or so, like I've learned a lot about business and I've learned a lot about the decision that, uh, you know, the decisions that I have to make. And I'm assuming it's true with driving, but like if you're, if you're needing to make decisions and you sort of need to, you know, plow away any of that fear so that you can execute that decision with in, in, in racing, it's your body yep. in business. It's your, you know, mind. Yeah. I guess they're both your mind, but like, you know, 
does that come? I'm curious to know about driving specifically. Like, what happens when you drive afraid? Is what I'm asking. Yeah. So you know, like on, you know, referring to like the profession, like trading, I trade fearlessly, right? Like, I don't hesitate when it comes to trading and putting a massive risk on. Um, Wait, just, I gotta ask, what's a massive risk? <laughs> I mean, it's I, I'm trading like millions of dollars at play, right? And so like a trade could make a lot of money, like millions, or lose money. Uh, it's not like thousands; it's like you know, several millions. <laughs> And so, like, when you put these positions on, if you hesitate and if you're afraid of it, then the market's already shifted on you. Whatever view you had today is different tomorrow. Um, and so, like, you have to be – to trade at the skill that I do and put on the risk and manage the risk that I do, you have to be decisive, you know, think fast, execute quick, and live with the consequences and obviously have a game plan when things get to a certain point where you say, okay, I'm stopped out. This is how I'm going to get out or – I'm going to write this out or, you know, I've made so much money, potentially more than I thought was possible, like start closing out your position. So like in, in the way that I view that is very unemotional, fearless, and it's allowed me to really focus on I am good at what I do and just execute and have been extremely successful doing it. Now, when you get into a car, um, I try not to let fear kick in. And I think that that's one of the things that's allowed me to progress in racing fairly quickly is that I'm really good at comp compartmentalizing things. And I try not to let fear kind of creep in. And sure enough, the minute fear creeps in, like you, you're not fast. Right. Um, you know, and I, I, I hear that a lot. Obviously like I'm fairly new to the racing world, but a lot of the times the people that you see on TV, the guys that you see on F1 or at the highest levels aren't always the best drivers. You know, they're obviously talented and they're in that top tier but they're the ones that are always willing to send it, always willing to take the risk, always willing to test the limit on every corner. I mean, you see like you know, some of these F1 guys that come like within millimeters of touching the wall at 180 miles an hour, right? Like, like you see the tire almost touching the wall, like almost like brushing it. Yeah. Like it is insane to be willing to put the car at that pace, but that's the type of pace that you need to take to win. Because otherwise, like if you stay a foot off of it, you're not going to be able to compete. Um, and so... I think from a car standpoint, trying to keep fear out of your mind. Uh, one of the things that I had initially when I started driving is I was scared of driving in the rain. Mm. Um, and it's pretty scary when you're going fast and you see rain and puddles and you feel the car sliding everywhere and you break and the car like dances on you. But then as you gain skill and car control and ability and you do it one time, you do it two times, you do it three times, you start expecting it and now you know what's going to be like. And so then now I'm no longer really afraid. I know I think that there's an element of excitement and anxiety when I go, like you don't know what to expect because now the conditions are really unpredictable. And you know that any minute you can spin, any minute you can lose it, you can hydroplane and you know, things like that will and can happen. Um, but it's no longer like, oh my God, it's raining. I'm, I'm scared of getting in the car. It's always like, oh, it's raining. Now I just have to adapt in the way that I'm going to drive. Yeah. Um, but there's still that element of like, still with me, slight fear sure. of like not necessarily i don't know if it's fear perhaps fear i think it's just that element of like i have a lot to lose if something happens yeah you know like yeah. I, you know like i can't just be careless and yeah. find let, let's find out what happens if i go this crazy or like this fast right like there's still and obviously i've experienced it when i've already had a distance size incident right where i, where I, I hit a wall and you know everything was fine. The cars are 
that I drive is the safest car, in my opinion, that, that you can drive. Um, and, you know, I wear all the safety gear and everything. So, like, I walked away with, like, no bruising, like, barely a couple of marks. And it was a sizable impact, but... How fast were you going? I was probably going, like, 140 miles an hour when the car when the car lost the rear end. Where so was it? Was, it, was, it was in Hockenheim in uh, Germany. Okay. Uh, earlier in the year, and it was a fast right-hander. And I went a little too far out, and the car didn't, like, get any... Turn inward, and you went straight into a concrete barrier. Steer. Yeah. Just the front wheels didn't want to turn. Yeah, they didn't want to turn. And then the rear just lost it. And like I went straight. Like, once it gripped, it, I was facing a concrete wall. And I slammed the brakes. I think I hit the wall, like, at 75, 80 miles an hour. I uh, just bounced right off of it. Like, you know, like a big impact. Car was total. Uh, but everything was fine. Like, life was good, and, you know, there was no issues. But things like that come to mind when I go to another track, and I see a similar corner. Like, okay, I, I've been there before. I'm not going to do that again. Yeah. Um, and so then you become a little bit cautious, and then the time isn't there. Right. And then you compare your data versus, like, the people that are fast. And you see, like, you know, you because these cars have all the telemetry and all the data analysis, you see that through this corner, I'm hitting the brakes or I'm lifting when they're staying flat through it. And it's just like, you just got to trust that the car is going to grip. You know, and this is like that tight, like that slight hesitation costs you half a second. Yeah, for sure. And, and if you're half a second slower than someone in any race and you're doing 40 laps, like they're going to beat you by 20 seconds. Yeah. Like they're going to be way miles ahead of you. And so like you can't hesitate or you won't be quick. And, you know, I still have, I think, at least for my development, this year in racing, I certainly closed that gap where I look at what the pros are doing and the quickest drivers are doing and with what I'm doing. And I closed a massive gap from the beginning of the year at the start of the racing until where I am now, where like I've gotten more confident and comfortable with with like just staying flat. Like, you know, in in most tracks, you want to use the brakes as least as possible in a sense. Yeah. It makes you think about it though, because in golf, if one of the metrics is you want to go faster, there's such a thing as speed training and people practice that. How do you practice fear training? Right. What is what is that? Yeah, I, I I honestly don't know. You know, I mean, are there mental coaches? Um, there is certainly mental coaches, um, and that's for driving. For driving, there's mental coaches. It's, it's huge. It's a huge thing. Like I've used one. I, I work with with Michael and uh, Italiano, who you know we we have just chats. You know how to prepare, how to get ready, uh, visualize. You know we we've worked on like like aspects of things in life that I do that I feel comfortable and like I feel good at and I feel that I have the confidence to do it like what are those elements of that experience that make me feel comfortable and confident in doing and like trying to apply those into something that you aren't comfortable and that you aren't as confident to kind of at least give you a little bit more comfort and and confidence in doing it and that's the thing about you know any sport really at the highest of levels but particularly in racing is you have to be comfortable with the possibility of hitting a wall, yeah. which many other sports don't really have that risk. But, you know, yeah. you look at it from a football standpoint, and if you're a running back and you're afraid of getting hit by a 300-pound dude, like, you're not going to run towards a 300-pound dude and try to get past him. That's a good point. You know? Um, it happens, you know, in, in other sports, uh, but impact sports in particular. Yeah. You know, like baseball, right? Like, I'd be afraid of seeing a 100-mile ball coming at me. Yeah, and so like if I'm afraid of the possibility of getting hit by a hundred mile ball, I would never stand in 
in the box and swing, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I played. So um, I think that there's elements of things that I think in racing are much higher risk than in other things. Uh, and personally, I've always been a lot more like risk forward from a business, from a profession, you know, trading, investing in people, spending money in projects or in things that I thought were, you know, passions or, or possibilities and being more risk forward in that sense. Yeah. But when it came to like real life, like I don't ski because I didn't learn skiing and I've seen what happens when you try to learn skiing as an adult, it hurts. <laughs> and like the risk reward of the joy of skiing to me just doesn't make sense. Like I just don't ski. Right. Um, and you know, there's all, all kinds of things about life that I do to be cautious that racing is actually like the complete opposite of what you would imagine someone like me doing. Right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm seeing the comparison between skiing and racing. And I think, I think <laughs> racing's more intense. Yeah. So let's go to a quick break. I want to, I want to, after that though, I want to get into like, just, yeah, I, I had this personal experience once driving a very basic car on a very basic closed track and I fell in love and I, and I want to talk about how that happened with you and everything. So cool. let's go to a quick break and then come right back big note from a big sponsor on the podcast ketone iq if you've been listening to the if for some reason you skip the podcast and are only listening to the ad uh the moment when rafa goes i feel it now you know we try to give all of our guests ketone iq because it helps boost your focus and whatever atp is it does that which i think is brain volume you want your brain volume to be mad high you want your you want your Apple Watch to be like, dude, your brain volume is, is is a very high level. It's a loud environment in there. I was actually at the UT game and twice my phone was like, it's very loud. I was playing soccer once and I shouted and it said that to me, <laughs> which seemed to say I was being too loud. I don't know. Ketone IQ, good friends of the pod. Um, we're really excited to see them on the Mad Scramble Tour. And hey, you want to come meet some Ketone IQ folks? Come out to the uh, meetup in San Diego. Dude, it's going to be a blast. Um, here's the thing. It tastes like gasoline because it is fuel for your brain developed in tandem with the U S military. This stuff gets you dialed in way better than a Red Bull. Head over to HVMN.com slash RGC, where you can save 30% off your first subscription order of ketone IQ. That's HVMN.com slash RGC. TacomoGolf.com, folks. You all know I've been playing Tacoma irons for a hot minute here. The last year and a half, I've loved having these irons in my bag. I love talking about them when people ask me. I love the way they look. I love the way they work. I love the way they feel. I've come very close to making a handful of hole-in-ones with the 9-iron. Um, ultimately, you won't believe the price tag, folks. You're going to get a Japanese forged head paired with a KBS shaft and a Lambkin grip for around five, $600. You cannot beat it. It's insane. It's an insane deal. Our boys in Finland have got the lock on irons. So head over to... TacomaGolf.com. And you can even go to TacomaGolf.com slash RGC. I think there's a, a little page up there where you or can... Or go to Random Golf Club slash Tacoma. Yeah, and again... That's what we're fucking doing now. You, if you do that right now, maybe it won't work. Maybe hey, it won't work. Come, come check in soon. Maybe tomorrow it'll work. We're so excited for what we're going to do with them next year and get... Get very pumped if you want to try Tacoma irons. Ooh, raise your hand. Yeah. Literally pull over and raise your hand. Literally, we'll be there. we're going to be doing so many giveaways next year. Airdrop. And uh, we can't wait to get them in your hands as soon as possible. I can't wait to get in your hands. Yeah, okay. Okay, <laughs> back to the podcast. But you're, grab the club. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Head over to TacomaGolf.com. 
And at some point you're like, I have enough money to try some weird shit. And you just happen to get into a race car on a racetrack or, or, and, and quick, quick end of the story here. Now your whole life revolves around car racing for the most part, right? You, it, yeah. you travel the world, other people travel the world with your cars. They get them set up for you at the, any racetrack spa. Yep. And you drive for a few days, you win races. Yep. You have a brand that's about racing, races, family, always you make content, you're building out a whole, you know, experience in Houston for people who are car aficionados. You're going to be selling cars. It's your life, right? Yeah. It's your, it's your future. It's your world. It's your passion. When did you first get into a car and say, fuck yeah, this is when did you first get into a car? And then when did you first see it? Yeah. So like I've watched racing and I've never really thought it was something that I would ever try. Like to me, it was just like, if you grow up in racing, that like, that's what you do. Uh, it wasn't something I was going to pick up. Uh, but I had a McLaren. I've always been a car guy. And, you know, I was I was one of those guys that every year had a new car. I traded in. I'd lose 8K. I didn't care because, like, I wanted to get the new model. And I drove a Mercedes. And then I was like, you know what? I like that Audi. Let me trade that one in. Okay, 10,000 negative equity. I don't care. Just write the check. I want to drive that car. Like, that was me, right? Like, it was just revolving year after year. So I, over the course of a decade, I probably drove, like, I, I owned, like, eight cars, right? And it was always, like, a car thing was always my thing. Like, I love cars. Um, and I had a McLaren, I had bought a McLaren in 2020, um, and that was right during the shutdown. Um, and I didn't get to drive it much because of that. Like I would actually go out on Sundays and then just go up the highway 20, 30 minutes and come home. Cause we were just stuck at home for so many weeks and months. Um, and I kept getting invited the guy that helped me uh, at the dealership to buy the car, um, kept telling me like, Hey, there's this group of guys that are all the McLaren owners in Houston. Like you should come to the track. They're a pretty good group. And I just always passed on it. Like, I was just like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not tracking my car. Like, Interesting. It's just not my thing. And it was a road car, right? It's, it's a McLaren. And um, finally, in February of 2021. Why did you not want to track the car? Because I'm assuming you got speeding tickets. It, it, it was just like not a thing that I really thought was like my thing. Like, you know, and, and when I thought about tracking, you know, in my head, for some reason, it was always a drag strip. And like, it just never really attracted me. Like I always thought drag strip was just like, it's just not my thing, right? I just have to say, like, I relate so deeply because for years, my brother said, let's go play golf. And I was like, no, it's not my thing. And then as soon as I did it, I was like, fucking shave my head. I'm <laughs> yeah. wrong. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. So like when I finally got to the track... Oh, when I finally found out they were going to Coda for one, so they were coming down here, I was like, wait, you guys get on the F1 track? They're like, yeah, dude, I've been trying to tell you for months to come. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit, well, if I knew, I would have come much quicker. And so I came out, and I was just blown away. But, like, how many people were there? How many trailers were there? And all these, like, I'm asking, like, and all these people are like, it's just a hobby. Like, yeah, that's my trailer. I loaded up the car, you know, yesterday, drove down. And you drove your McLaren from Houston. From Houston. And you, and you, and no one else was doing that. You, yeah, everybody was like, like slumming it here, <laughs> driving the McLaren to the track. To the track. And so the first day that I came, all I did was get a ride along. I got one ride along and I got dizzy and I was just like, <laughs> that was absolutely insane. I've never, been in a car like that, I had no idea that these cars have that braking capability. They have that turning capability, the acceleration. It is absolutely insane. Like, I was completely blown away, and I only came for, like, I wouldn't call it, like, half a day, but, like, two-thirds of a day. How many laps did you get in the ride all It was probably, like, six, eight laps. That's pretty good. It's pretty good here at Kodak. So got so used to it. I got used to it, and I was still, like, just everything was, like, kind of shaking. Right? It was my first time ever in a car, and I was like, man, like, that was intense. I need some food. It was early in the morning. I'm dizzy. Like... <laughs> 
the the earth is still like spinning on me a little bit. And so then I was just like, man, that was absolutely insane. So I went home uh, and I was like, I got to get back. And so I asked them, when are you guys coming back? They told me, you know, in about a month. So then I came back in a month and then I got ride alongs all day, uh, all day when I was there. And that was like March of 21, March, April of 21. And then at the end of April, there was another event and I finally signed up myself to participate. In your car? In my car, yeah. Were you nervous about that? I was nervous um, in the sense of, I knew that the car had a lot of horsepower and it was going to be a lot to handle. Um, and there was not necessarily about the value of the car because like, I had insurance. I, I bought track insurance. Uh, but really just not knowing what to expect and whether I could actually ever do what I'd seen these guys do. Like right. these guys just were like manhandling the car, right? Like, painting just it. Just painting it, right? And I was just like, can I ever get there? And so I wasn't sure how I was going to feel. And... Um, I get there and they assign you an instructor when you're the first, you know, first time ever participating in one of these, uh, they call them a, uh, driver education okay. type of events, right? Like DEs. Um, and, um, they paired me with an instructor. Well, the instructor texted me and it was a lady like on Wednesday or Thursday before the event, which is on a Saturday. And so we chit chatted about what I was going to do. And I get there and it was a 60 year old lady and she'd been racing Miatas. Like her car was like, she had a little Miata race car. And so I started chatting with her and I was like, so how'd you get into racing? And she's like, well, I've never raced, but my husband's always been doing this track stuff for years and I never did. So about 10 years ago, I decided like, yeah, screw it. I'll give it a try. And so I got into it and I've been doing it for 10 years now. And now I'm an instructor. I thought that's kind of interesting. Like in my head, I'm thinking like, well, if this lady can do it and you know, she's having a good time, like certainly I can do it. And so it actually gave me confidence in the fact that like, I probably had to, you know, I, I, at least that I was old, you know, like not too old to learn it, that sure. I still had plenty of time because she started when she was 50 and now she was 60, right? And so I was like, well, at the time I was like my mid-30s. And so I decided to just, you know, stay calm and getting in the car in my head, I was like, okay, I know I'm going to be nervous, so I just need to be chill. And, you know, oddly enough, as soon as I got onto the track, it just felt like I was driving, everyday driving, like super calm in the car, uh, I had an ear set, and she was talking to me the whole time, like, give it gas, brake, brake harder, turn left, more turn, turn a wheel more, turn a wheel more, give it gas. And so she's kind of giving me some feedback on, on the driving. And throughout the day, I just got quicker, and I felt, you know, pretty good about the result after the first, after the first weekend. Um, and, yeah, as soon as I went home, that was like two and a half years ago, I was just like, I know this is going to be bad. Like, I just know it. <laughs> that was just too damn fun. Like, I know, like, I'm I, I'm going to pursue, like, just getting really good at this at this point. And so, like, that's how it all got started. So my first time ever on track, in any track, was April of 21. That's insanely rapid. It's only yeah. been a little more than two years. And now, like, how big is the team that supports you on track? Um, so, I mean, we, I have several, you know, like we were there at the track last weekend and we probably had about a 20 person crew helping support. Okay. So you have a 20 person drivers. crew you have, and how many drivers do you have on staff? Um, so drivers, the, the, the club, so the club is a membership based club. Right. Um, and we probably have about 15, 18 drivers. Like, and we don't even have a membership yet. Right. Uh, but we have about 18 drivers that regularly drive with us. And then I have one pro driver that I'm working with. What's her name? And then her name is uh, Jem, Jem Hepworth. Yeah. yeah. 
And so uh, she's a sign driver. We have her under contract, uh, and she's helping me develop and support the brand and all, all kinds and of just, stuff. And just for contrast, now you rent out Coda. Yeah. And you let these 18 people that are in your to-be-formed club use the track all day. Yeah. That's what you do now. Yeah. That's just crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, and like you look at the infrastructure of what we have. I have car haulers, you know, 18 wheelers who haul cars. I have the whole equipment and everything. You're like crew. the, uh, you're like, um, what, what's the, what's the military group that's like waiting for war? Like the Reserves? National Guard? You're in the National Guard. You're like the National <laughs> Guard. I mean, we, we have a whole Ready? infrastructure. Yeah, it's crazy how quickly it all came together, but like that goes to show, I would say, oh, that, that, that is, I would say like a reflection of like my ability to execute. And when I see something, I pull the trigger. When I see something, I pull the trigger. When I see an opportunity, I pull the trigger, right? And so if I hesitated in any of this, it wouldn't have happened. Right. Um, and it wouldn't have scaled to the degree that it did uh, and that it has. And, uh, yeah, I mean, when I was, like, going to the track throughout that summer of 21, every time I went, there, I was like, why is there nobody here, like, doing stuff? Like, yeah. why is it just... It was really individuals. Individuals. It was just the organizer. There's a couple of small businesses that are taking care of a couple of cars, but there was no big organization yeah. supporting the drivers. And I was looking at, you know, we had people from Houston driving down, and all of us had our own trailers. All of us showed up in our own trucks. We're all there, like, helping each other unload. And I was just like, why the hell don't we just buy a hauler and all of us just haul the cars down? So, and like, yeah. that makes sense. And again, this goes back to, like, electronic engineering with your dad and your own like you know like the the trading it's like economies of scale logistics yeah. like you know if we make one decision together none of us have to think yeah and, and so like that's really the concept of the club is you know we, we want to develop drivers we want to promote and create access you know in motorsports uh but the value that the members get outside of like being part of a community and being part of this family and um and having access to what we do is the economies of scale value. Yeah. The fact that, you know, I can haul six cars at a cheaper rate than six individuals can. Sure. Uh, I can provide the techs for any event that we have versus you individually having to hire the tech for your own car. Yeah. Because now I can have techs cross-train, cross-work on cars. Um, and all of it is just a lot smoother and, and you know, more efficiently done. Um, and professionally done, right? Like it's one thing having a tech check your tire pressures and your torques versus like you doing it and trusting that you can go 150 miles an hour and the wheels aren't going to fall off. Yeah. Um, and so like I had to check my torques when they first started. And it was interesting getting into the track, like I said, and all these people showing up in their trailers and we all are rolling our individual toolboxes into the garage. Yeah. So like now we have four toolboxes, four like torque wrenches. We have four of everything. And I was just like, this got to be a more efficient, better way of doing this. And that's really where the club and idea of being able to provide these services kind of came about outside of, you know, the fact that we were, every time we went to the track, we would add a new driver. People would see us barbecuing. They'd come over, like, who are you guys? We started chit-chatting. They'd, they'd start garaging with us. And so, like, that's how we started, like, adding in, adding people to to the people that were tracking with us. What do you think it is about cars that are driving or whatever it is that, like, you know, like, there's just so many different interest groups around the world. And, like, Jojo, you're a part of a few, right? Like, Right, like the, the 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 interest groups that we involve ourselves in, you know, it's like golf for me, obviously. Yeah, of course. Um, I like pickleball. You like soccer. Mm -hmm. um, you like movies. Movies, writing, any of that stuff. Yeah, like like documentaries. Mm -hmm. You like cars. You know, it's like what 
What is it about cars that brings people together? Man, I think it's just like, you know, when you go to a race versus like watching it on TV, the adrenaline that you sense when the cars go by. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's just, it's, it's one of those things that people love the way cars look um, and the way they, they sound. Um, and, and it's just one of those things, like it's, it's a piece of art, right? But there's like all of this like engineering that goes behind it. Um, and so for me, what always drew me to cars was, you know, visually seeing them, hearing them, stepping on the throttle. Like I can never be an electric car guy. Right, like if if I it's just not my thing. I, I if I you know I, I'm sure at some point I'm going to end up having to just by default. Yeah. Uh, but like I love the sense of the throttle. I love the sense of the smell. I love fumes. Like there's all these like yeah. combustion. That ties back to the energy trading. And, and, <laughs> I want to support my industry. You know, <laughs> uh, even though electrical cars probably support the industry to a large degree more. Oh, interesting. More than people think. It's more about the grid of natural gas turning into electricity. Yeah. Fascinating. So that's the hard part about electricity, right? It's like you want to electrify the entire grid and the whole world, but there's not enough sun or water or other fuels to like really support the demand that we have. And, you know, the more powerful you make electronics, like your iPhone, you know, how much it takes, how much energy it takes to charge your iPhone. Does it take a lot? Yeah. I mean, relative to like what... It takes more than it used to. They used to, right? Really? Yeah. With the high, you know, high, high, high speed chips. Yeah, the EPA, and it, let, them, let them know. <laughs> That's an issue. I mean, yeah. golf also, not, you know, pesticides and water usage, obviously. Yep. I mean, we're all going down. Let's not get into that. <laughs> Let's, wait, so... Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as like what gets people, like, I think it's just like, like the speed of things, yeah. you know, like the sound. Um it's just a good show. I mean, yeah. you'll see it this weekend. I but can't do you, wait. Do you Rock think up, of racing as a lonely sport? A lonely? Yeah. Like we always talk about golf being complicated because it's in some ways one of the loneliest games in the world yep. that you do with people and, and is so revolved around connection. At some point, it's just you in the car, but you have this interaction with all these people around you. And then there's the team element of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that. It's certainly a lonely sport because once you're in a car, um, you know, there's no one really there to help you. Yeah. Um, there's no, you know, even when you have teams, you see it in F1, like teams hardly ever really help each other. Yeah. Like the drivers are always competing oh, no. against each other. I mean, last week there was you a know, like, Mercedes took each other out. They're, they're always there. And so like if they have to make a call at some point near the end of the season for the championship points and things like that, they'll do it. But generally, you know, it's it's a solo sport. Yeah. Um, and it is a very time-consuming sport. You know, you say, you know, golf, obviously, like it's a really time-consuming sport. But like race, you have to go far places to be able to race because of the real estate that it requires to own a track, right? right. And like how far it needs to be. And you don't say drive to the track, do an hour race and leave. Like no. it is an entire weekend, you know. Like my trips to Europe were six, seven day longs for one race weekend, because you have to get there. Now you're jet lagged, so you want to make sure you have time to recover. Then you do your practice day. God. Then you do like the quality and race, quality and race, and then, you know, you're in Germany. You can't just fly home at seven o'clock on Sunday. Yeah. You know, you have to wait till Monday to fly, and by the time you get back and I mean, it's in the whole ordeal, right? And even if you do it within the states, um, a lot of these locations are in remote remote areas because of the same thing that real estate to have a proper track is 
you know, a couple hundred acres at a minimum. Yeah. And so they don't use it. They don't usually have them near near big towns. You're always in a small town, and to get in and out of there, it's just always a four or five day minimum thing. Yeah. Not just like go golf one day. I had yeah. That makes it sound like it's like nothing. Like going to grab a. We certainly don't worry about the jet lag. <laughs> yeah. We should more yeah, than I mean, we do. Well, there's not much danger involved in golf. I, I had this when we were talking about the what makes you like what what brings people to cars. I had this crazy moment yesterday. Uh, Jojo asked me to find a photo from when I first started playing golf, and so I'm I'm in my phone, I'm in my like archive of photos, and I'm going back to 2010 when I first got into golf, and I saw something that really surprised me. Not golf related, um, you know, a few years ago. To a year or two ago, my my old neighbor was like, "Hey, I'm selling my car," and I had a Tesla at the time, and I needed to drive from LA to Austin, and I was like, "You know, Tesla's going to suck for that drive, so I'm going to try and get rid of it and get a get a gas powered car that can actually do a road trip." And this guy had a 911, and it was actually a really good price. I was able to trade out the car and end up with the Porsche with really not losing anything, and so I got the car. I couldn't fit anything in the car, but you know, whatever. I put a roof rack on it immediately. And so then I became like a, a Porsche lover. Like I really became like in love with these cars and we've talked about them. And, yep. But what's funny is I went back in my phone yesterday, 13 years ago, and there were all these photos of Porsches that I had seen in the wild. You know, there was, there was an old, you know, there was an old one and there was a newer one. And then there was my exact car that I have now. And it was really strange for me to look at that and be like, whoa, it's always been there. Yeah. Like this thing... And, and, you know, there was a long time in my life where in into my mid-30s where I would be driving through L.A. in my $1,000 Volvo station wagon and I would see a Mercedes C230 pull up next to me. And I would just wonder, where did they find the money to buy that car? Yeah. You know, and then I would I wouldn't even a G-Wagon. I wouldn't even know what to say, you know, but like it was always this kind of, you know, visual spiritual barrier. Right. And, and it was so interesting because to look at myself, take pictures of that car as though it was like a ghost of my future. Right. I mean, fuck. And I'm, you know, you've had, I don't want to say like rags to riches, but like, is, is, what's that like for you? Yeah. Like, I don't know what that was like, but it sounds like that's kind of what it was like. That certainly is. I mean, you know, growing up the way that we did and coming here and, you know, basically starting, fresh from the ground up, you know, parents making minimum wage when they moved here, right? Like we kind of had to grow up through that. And, um, you know, as a kid, my parents' car would break down on the way to school or like on the way to a, a soccer game, on the way to visit family. And we'd be stranded and waiting for a tow truck or waiting for someone to come help us because the car was steaming up. And like we had, you know, cars break down. And I always tell myself that, you know, when I get old, like I'm never going to have an old car. Like, I'm never dealing with this. Like, as a kid, I was just like, there's no way I'm ever going to have an old car because, like, I'm not going to get stranded like this again. And so, like, it started, you know, that mentality of, like, always wanting and needing a new car kind of started from the frustrations as a kid of us, like, being stuck in a car in the heat when, like, my dad's outside trying to put some water in a steaming car, you know? (laughs) The radiator cap pops off. exactly. I mean, we had all of that, right? And so, like, from that standpoint, like, it was always for me, you know, I always liked cars as a kid. I always played with cars, and I always dreamed of having, you know, cars. Um, and once I got to, you know, to be an adult, I pretty much told myself, like, I'm going to have a car note the rest of my life. Like, I will always be paying for a car, yeah. new car, all the time. And the reason I woke up to the, you know, to go to, to go to work, the reason I woke up to go to school, the reason I got grades, was always in my head so I can drive whatever the hell car I want. 
like it's always been my motivation. Anybody that knows me, like I've, over the years, like I've always told them, you know, like I don't care what it costs to run that car. Like people ask me, like, well, how much is insurance? How much is this? And like I don't care, because the reason I go to work every day is so I can drive with a yeah. little car I want. That right there is the why. So there's no questions asked. Yeah, and it's so funny to me that like I mean that existed for how many years for of just like car obsession in the about in the a, world where you can a, afford it about a decade. Yeah, a decade. So you go a decade of that, and then. And but you're still like not at that point where you are now, which is just like it's totally different. Now now it's like I'll bet now. I mean, are all of the cars that you race street legal? No, so the the race cars are uh, uh, race only, like not street legal. Okay, so is there now a world where you're in your street legal car and you're just kind of like thinking about your your track car? It is, and like it, it's gotten to the point where like you know I have like forty cars now. Okay, and that's, a, that's a few. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, hard and to drive getting, all And I'm ones. getting rid of some of them. Um, and as I think, like, what would I get next? Like, you know, I want to say uh, Pagani or, yeah. you know, all these really high expensive luxury you know what Pagani cars. is, Jojo? I was going to ask if you said Bugatti yeah. differently than I. Or, 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 or Bugatti. Pagani right? is like a Bugatti in all caps. I see. Right? Pagani yeah. is like the top, italics. top three yeah. supercars in the world. Yeah. And there's, there's, they're all equal at that point. They're, they're all equal. I mean, you're looking at car, right? Yeah, plus like three plus. to five. You know, like depending <laughs> on the model. Yeah. Is that sure. one of those cars though, where it's just it has an absurd amount of power and it's still comfortable to be in? Like what's pretty much, that? yeah. And, and it's like beautifully made, handmade, crafted, everything. Like it looks very apart. But are you about to say you don't even want it anymore? Because then I look and I was like. I don't even want it anymore because, you know, like from a luxury standpoint, yeah, I will cruise in it, but I'm not going to daily drive that, right? Like no. it will likely end up sitting parked there more. And so when I look at, you know, I have a, say, for example, I have a McLaren Senna. Uh, it's a $1.5 million car. Incredible car to drive on a track. But then I own a race car that gives me a lot better lap times. It's a lot more like visceral to drive, way safer to drive. So it's like, then why would I track my Senna? Yeah, I would just drive my million dollar race car that is like much faster, like much much faster, <laughs> and it's like far safer. Yeah, and like what you feel from driving that car on track, it is like exponentially crazier, wilder. Like the like all the feels that you get from driving that car on track versus a Senna, and Senna is like the road track monster. Yeah, like out of all road cars that have ever been made, Senna is held up the. You know, at the pinnacle of what a road car for the track looks like. Yeah. But then you compare it to just a, a proper, you know, like a built race car, and you would never drive the Senna again. Like right. you would just drive the road car again. So, like, as I look at getting rid of some of the cars that I have that I've accumulated, they have good value, good equity in them, and cars that I'm like, you know what, I haven't driven that in six months, eight months. Like, I'm just going to get rid of it. Because initially, when I had the car, I loved it. I still love it. And I had some form of emotional attachment to it. But then there's like a couple of race cars that I want to get. And like, well, I need to get rid of some road cars that I'm not using for it. Yeah. And so then now, like like you said, like now when I look at driving on the road, I'm not going to go drive a road car all kinds of crazy fast no. when I have my race car that's just like a rocket, right? Getting your fix. Yeah. It kind of makes me think like there was there was a point where the car went from being a toy to a tool. Yeah. Because now it's like you're on the track to do something and the car is going to help you do that. Yep. Whereas before it was like the car. Yep. I'm going to go drive this car. But now it's like, oh, no, no. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care anything. I just want spec. Yeah. Right? 
there's still the element of that, and obviously, like I still would like to drive a car that I think looks cool, yeah, or that visually to me looks badass, right? Like I still want that, but it's far less. Like my race cars all have bumps and dings, and like you know, I've hit walls. People have hit me. Uh, I you know, one of the races brushed someone, complete shattered the front end, so that we had to put a new bumper in that doesn't even match my car. So like now, my 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 race car that I raced in Europe has panels that don't even belong to the car. But you don't so, care. But I don't care. Because to me, the actual like visual aspect of it, it just adds character to a race car. It just means like I've been in some shit. Yeah. You know, I got somebody else's paint and, and, and cuffs on my car because like we traded paint and we were like fighting for a race. Trading so paint. now now the like the dings and the things that the car shows from a physical standpoint are reminders and character to like experiences. Versus a door ding that you got at the grocery store. Yeah, it's just like a, like it just pisses you off. Yeah, I was gonna ask. So like on your drive out from Houston to go to Coda that first time with your McLaren, then like were you avoiding trucks so that you yeah. wouldn't get a stone? Yeah, I mean, so funny thing is like I actually almost didn't drive a McLaren. I was thinking about buying a cheaper car to learn to drive. <laughs> Because not I didn't want McLaren idea. getting rock chips. It's honestly like not a bad idea. You know? And I was like, <laughs> rock chips are the worst. Are the worst. But now you couldn't give a fuck. I can give a fuck. And like when I look at the car, I got stickers on it. I got rock chips all over the hood in the front, and like it looks like I've been tracking it. And it's almost like a, it's almost like a validation. Like, yeah, I don't care about the cost of racing. I don't care about you know like keeping my car pristine. Because I bought the car not to keep it pristine, I got it to drive it. Yeah, and so it has all those characters in it. What a and full circle thing. It's just insane. Like me- mentally, yeah, it just completely changed my 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 approach and my view of like you know character in a car, and like actually driving and enjoying the cars. And you know the reason I want to get rid of a lot of them is just because I'm not enjoying them. Like I don't have joy in just looking at them. Yeah, I, I want to drive them, and I'm so busy and tied up that like you know having thirty cars is way too many. So I'm trying to narrow it down to like. Yeah. 12. Happy to help. Yeah. Happy to help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I've ended up down this um, YouTube rabbit hole before looking at like quarter mile sprint races and stuff. And and they'll pull like a Tesla plaid super whatever against all these supercars and the Tesla will always smoke them. Yep. What would a what would a car like that do in an actual track? So the, the, the plaid has been put to the test in some tracks. Um, and they're capable cars, but they, they just don't have the aerodynamics of like, you know you couldn't race in the plat like you, you just go right off the track yeah you go off the track like you know, you you'd go running into cars because the precision that you have to have in a car in a race comes from the adaptive you know dampers comes from the balance comes from uh, the arrow like all these things that like, you couldn't run a plat tail to tail with another plat you know like like you do race cars and and so like you would overheat and things like that you know you need way more open space. So the plaids have actually done some quick laps because they're so fast in a straight line Yeah, that they they make up the sacrifice you have to make in the corners by going so fast in a straight line. But it's not a car that you could actually like really race in. So they, they've done some pretty quick laps though. So if you look at just lap time, it looks pretty impressive. Uh, but it's, you know, in a race and generally in racing, it's more so about your corner speed and your position than it is about going in a fast in a straight line. I guess yeah. they chew up tires too. They chew up tires. They chew up brakes. Like I know people yeah. have used them at Coda, and they go through a set of brakes like in an hour. What? Because a car is so heavy. I remember when I the so like the first moment I really like 
before my neighbor offered me to buy his car, we were doing a job for Chase. And they were like, okay, we want you to film at Harding Park in San Francisco. And we want you to drive up the coast and make a video like using your Chase Sapphire card to like go get food and stuff. And we want you to take a convertible. And I was like, okay, fine. And so they were like, we want you to take a, it was like a Mercedes E-Class convertible. And I was like, hell no. Like if I'm taking a convertible and I send him back this other car that I found on Turo and it was like a, just a bit like a 911, like a 2014 911. And they were like, cool, that works. And so I rented it. It wasn't actually that expensive and Chase paid for it. And I remember like, I was like, cool, I'll drive it. And at this time I had a Model 3. And I remember I got on the 101 and I was still like two or three hours from my first stop where we were shooting. There was a minivan behind us. And I was like on the freeway and I was like realizing that there's no like, you know, no, guidance. no auto steer. There's no auto steer. There was no cup holder. There was no like nav thing. And I was just like, I fucking hate this car. <laughs> And I really did hate it for the first couple hours. And then we got off the 101 and got on the 1, which is, you know, the windiest, most beautiful road in America. And I remember the first turn. And I was like, whoa, like this car is not my Tesla, right? This is a very different vehicle. And then going back to your Tesla, you know, like sports car analogy or, or like, you know, comp. Couple days later, we're like in the trip. And now I'm on the 1 and I'm going through Big Sur. And Big Sur, have you, have you, have you yeah. driven Big Sur? Yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah. I mean, talk about a risk reward. Like you've got ocean <laughs> on one side. Yeah. Or you got a camper van or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I've done the one like in a Volvo I've, and I've done it in this Porsche. And so and so then I'm going up there and I'm just like really going for it. And I come up on a Model 3. And the Model 3 is like wants to race or whatever. And it's a it's a one lane, two lane road or whatever. But I noticed that on the straights, he would definitely beat me. But then as soon as we got into a turn, he was like all over the place. Yeah. And um I remember that that being one of the like that that was lodged in my brain as a clear you know indicator that like the 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 Model Three is a car, the Porsche or any sports car really that that is an experience yeah. like that you're driving that car the other one you're riding in yeah and I think so common like that's what's interesting about cars like everybody drives more more so everyone rides yeah exactly. <laughs> And then very, and then I got to do this Porsche experience where I drove around that track, and I was like, I mean, I don't know. It's that was in April of this year, and I just like, I just can't wait to do it again. It's still, it's I still think about it, and that's, you know, it goes to show like how complicated the logistics of driving are. Yeah, and it's cool. I can't wait to. Yeah, one of the things that you know that you learn, and I learned, uh, and I have learned. I'm still obviously developing and, and getting much better, and and got so far to go as far as racing but um one of the big things that you learn is just like the dynamics physical dynamics of the car yeah of like if you want the car to turn in in a certain way there's steering there's braking there's acceleration there's the speed with which you brake and the speed with which you release the brake there's the speed with which you lift the gas and so like all these things are causing the car to pivot and then your steering input, depending on what you're doing with your pedals, is going to be more or less responsive. So depending on what you can, like where you put the weight of the car, it's going to steer better or worse. And then you can cost the car to understeer by, you know, getting the weight more squared or, or, or not so nose dive versus right. you can do an oversteer by like pressing the brakes hard and turning the car in while the weight's in the front. 
and then you get the rear to pivot. And so you can get the car to turn with the pedals as well as with steering. And in a lot of ways, you probably steer more with the pedals than you do with the wheel itself. Dude, I'm just thinking like, it sounds like a barista, <laughs> and like it's a world winning barista where it's like foam and coffee, just like. It is insane, like where the water temperature, where the water was distilled, like yeah. all this, you know, coffees from certain parts of the world taste better because the local <laughs> water has this spring nature water that grows in that area, like all these different things. I mean, with the car, it is depending on what tire you're in, depending on what weather conditions are, what angle and camber the track is on. I mean, like it is insane how infinite number of variables and your brain has to process all of it instantaneously, continuously throughout the track. Yeah. And a lot of it, you feel it like right on your butt. You know, like you feel what you know, your butt tells your brain what to do. Yeah. Do you have a G-force indicator in the car? Um, we have it, not visually, but we have it in the data in the race car. What's the most you've experienced as a driver? Oh, man, I haven't even seen. Probably, really? when, I, probably when I crashed. <laughs> right, yeah. But it's usually point. like, you know, two, two, five. Two, five. Yeah. Yo, dude, that, I, you've never felt two, five in a car. No. And probably more if I looked, it, it might have been more on some of the corners and some of the hard brake turning points. Yeah. Like, you probably feel more of it. You know Formula One? Mm-hmm. Five, six. Yeah. What? It's insane. Yeah, it's like they're rocket pilots. Yeah. What? Um, so if if this if you're listening and this content's interesting to you, make sure to check out Rafa races family always. There's links in the description of the podcast to your YouTube channel, social. Um, what are you looking for? You're in Austin. What are you looking forward to this weekend? Well, I'm excited for the race. You know, we we have a 50 person cabana turn one, <laughs> uh, so we do it big. Uh, you know, we it, it's going to be absolute blast it's actually gonna be a little bit hotter than ideal for like our cabana is not climate controlled which is great because you get to stand there enjoy the breeze watch the race from turn one up on the hill it's like an incredible view okay um but well, and, and actually the straight there is a good passing zone yeah, yeah it's a good passing zone. Yes. Like you, you get to see him coming up the hill you get to see him going down turn two uh there's a lot of action in turn one like last yeah. year uh was it uh uh, Carlos that got turned around yeah. at turn one. There was impact. So like all the action generally happens in turn one and some turn ones are really iconic for, yeah. for the, the, you know, the, the nature of the shape of the corner leads to a quite a bit of impact and shoving around. And so Coda is one of those iconic corners where you're coming in flat to the, to the top and it's a pretty, pretty big left turn. Have you seen formula one at Coda before? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, this, this will be my third time going. Like last year, we were at turn one, and then this year we're back to turn one, but we just have a bigger party. Last okay. year we had thirty. This year we have fifty. Sick. And so I'm excited for it. Uh, we have a lot of people coming that are going to be, um, you know, some influencers type. Uh, we 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 put together a pretty pretty good packet of people to like have good networking and cool. and good conversations. So yeah, it's going to be pretty exciting. I can't wait, dude. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm, I'm guessing you're going. I'm going. Yeah, that'll be okay. fun. I can't wait. Uh, it's going to be insane. All, all I've done at Coda is I went to MotoGP, which was fucking terrifying. Like that is like I don't understand how those guys do it. Dude. Like, you think racing is crazy like, in a car? Like I don't know how these guys are. Like to me these guys I was like no disrespect to any of them, all of them. They're, crazy. they're all crazy. Crazy. Like crazy. you know how I know it's crazy? When a guy falls, tumbles 20 times, the bike tumbles 50 times, it's like half apart. And what the guy does first when he gets up, like when he gets up, he runs towards the bike and tries to keep going. Like, <laughs> that guy's got something wrong with him. 
And like they all do it. They all run towards our bike yeah. and try to get it going. That thing is just like wobbling. It's like, yeah. like dude, like, nah, not gonna work. you should probably check, make sure your legs are okay. Like it's, you know, that's the first thing they do is run towards the bike. Like their their mindset is just yeah insane. I don't know how they do it. We're, for that race, we got to go because I was a guest of Red Bull and we got to go out to the turns inside the track yeah. and stand like, Right up on right. the fence. And they were just buzzing by. And one time there was a guy who had like a speed wobble. And I was like, <laughs> I can't. I, I'm, I used to ride motorcycles. And yeah, I mean, I never. So I ne- I've never ridden a motorcycle. Don't. I've done like mopeds. Because like, you'll get yeah, into you it. You don't want to get into that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not allowed to. My family's already told me like, yeah. hey, you can race, but don't, don't get a bike. Um, it's never really been my thing. Like, that's one of those things that I talked about like risk reward. Yeah. Like, you know what? Yeah. Bike's no, not for me. Good. No skiing. <laughs> No motorcycle. No motorcycle. Little less golf than you used to play. Yeah. Um, Don't really enjoy swimming. Like I'll swim, swim at the swimming. pool. Like I'll sit. That's a strange one. Yeah, like in deep ocean water. I'm like you know, what? I don't know what's under there. Yeah. Like, Have you been to Barton Springs? Um. Dude, we gotta go. I haven't been. You would love it. Yeah. Yeah. Barton Springs is like the spirit of Austin. It's a 67 degree spring fed pool. Very safe. Yeah. Okay. No drowning. There's lifeguards everywhere. I haven't heard of any sharks yet. There's no sharks. There's like some turtles. Yeah. It's super cute. Yeah. It's I need like, to go. Yeah. Um, I mean, even when I've done the Guadalupe floating the floor in the river, uh-huh. I got my life jacket on. <laughs> just never know if I'm gonna hit a rock and like. It's I always funny what scares people able to versus float. what they're not terrified. Like, literally, everybody would laugh at me because, like, especially in college, like we'd come down and float the river, and everybody is like not wearing a life jacket. I'm like, dude, I'm wearing it. It's like, dude, the river is low. I was like, I don't care. You never yeah. know. Like, I fall over, I hit my knee, and I can't yeah. swim. Like, I want to be able to float. This is this is where you need the accounting. Like, you you've crashed a car going a hundred and how fast was that car going when you crashed? I was one hundred forty. When I crashed, it was like about seventy five. Yeah, miles. so it's going one hundred forty miles per hour. And uh, but when you're floating a lazy river, yeah, you got to yeah. get the life jacket. Th- this is definitely conversation, right? Yeah. Like, and so, like, all my buddies, like, I, yeah. I, we went Hold to Barcelona. Yeah. So my my racing Barcelona was, I guess, two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago. And I had a lot of my college buddies come up. Oh, cool! And uh, and you know, go to Barcelona, spend a whole week there. And like to them, it is the most insane thing, like what I'm doing, because we did so many things in college. And I was always like, "Hey guys, I'm putting my helmet on." They're like, "For what?" I'm like, "Dude, I'm wearing, like, I'm in a moped. I don't know." Skateboarding. Yeah, you know, like we're in Miami, like driving these little scooters, and I was the only one with like with a helmet on. Interesting. You know, like it is it, always just so me thinking ahead of like the caution and you know precaution, like just being. Ahead of like what might happen, yeah, like in a physical stance, yeah. But then from a work stance and everything else, he's like, yeah, I'm the most risk person. Like I gamble crazy, and like I can withstand betting big and not being like all like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Like I just, yeah. I just play like it's normal. What's end. your Vegas game? I play. So I used to play poker a lot, okay. and so I used to play poker in Vegas a lot. That now out. that checks out. Yeah. So now it's just like ah, I just takes so much time to play that unless I really want to play poker or a big tournament or a big game, most of the time I just play blackjack or yeah. uh, craps. What's what's the moment in blackjack that sticks out for you that just trumps all the others in your in your experience? Um I want to say that there was um a couple of runs where I was down and I was up and I was down and I was down, and I was down, where I was down like eight, ten grand, right? Like okay. I'm buying a thousand at a time, and I'm playing hundred, two hundred dollar hands, and he's just like, just keep getting beat up. And I was like, like I know it's gonna turn around, yeah. and I'm like, here's another thousand. Like I wasn't buying, like I wasn't betting like five hundred thousand bucks to try to make a thousand back. I was just like, I know it's gonna turn around. I know it's gonna turn around. And then like at some point, it just clicked where I bet like two hundred bucks, and. I won, and then I like I left the chips on the table. And it's like four hundred bucks, and I won, and I left eight hundred bucks, and I won, 
And then I was like, 50 bucks or 100 bucks. I think it was like the minimum. Yeah. And I lost. And I was like, <laughs> so I, like, I was like, 100 bucks and I lost. And I was like, 200, one, 400, one, 800, one. And like within 10 minutes, I was up like eight grand. Yeah. Betting like, oof. just like doubling down and just dodging. Like the, the time yeah. that I was about to, like, sometimes I would be like, I'm only I'm gonna keep 400 instead of 800, and I would lose that hand, but yeah. then I put 400 again and win it back. So, and so like there wasn't there was that I remember that like where it was like a fifteen thousand dollar difference, and it wasn't me betting two three thousand dollars that did it. It was like me sensing like turning around and then getting this gut instinct of like when not to bet big. Yeah. And every time I bet it small, I will lose. Every time I bet big, I would win. That is a and great it just, feeling. It was just crazy. Like I walked away like, damn, that was crazy. That's kind of like wearing your helmet. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, you escalate your bet and then you're like, all right, three in a row, four in a row, I'm good. Lose one, come back, keep escalating it again. Yeah. I love life. So it is a good system. Now, I do have a craps crazy story. We were in Colorado for my buddy's bachelor party. We went up to the mountains to the resorts and the max you could bid was a bet was $100. Okay. And I rolled for an hour and a half. Like <laughs> Straight. Wait, without and crapping it, out. Without crapping out. <laughs> Hour How and a half. The table, the table was full. I made like fourteen grand <laughs> with a hundred dollar bets just because I kept hitting all the bonuses. I had like a hundred dollars on hard ten, and I'd hit hundred dollars on everything. I hit the, all the bonus points, so I got paid on everything. Jesus. Yeah. That must. Have, I mean, craps is fun because it really is a community game. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I've rolled hot before, like 15, 20, 25 minutes. Like yeah. that was absolutely insane. I hit every button multiple times. And then at some point, you're just like, I need to just roll a seven. Like <laughs> yes. everyone, take your chips off the table. Yeah, exactly. I'm rolling a seven. At now. that point, like there, there's so much money on the table that I was just like, hey guys, like you should just take your money yeah, back. Yeah, like I want to warn you. But it's always crazy. That game is actually always crazy because. As hot as the table gets, the bigger the piles get. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they just completely wipe. So makes. then they take away like thousands of dollars away yeah. when you go like, you know what? We should have just picked up our chips and walked away. Yeah, yeah. Well, craps has that like emotional nature to it where it's like, we're winning. Yeah. It's never yeah. going to stop. Yeah. yeah. And then you just end up losing. Yeah. And it's the worst feeling too whenever like someone has a hot roll. Yeah. And then it's your turn to roll. <laughs> And everybody like gets their chips that they just won. It's like and then like first roll, first seven. roll seven. Yeah. Like ah. cool, cool, cool. Um, well, yeah, dude, I'm excited to hang this weekend. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, um, appreciate you having me. And uh, yeah, we need to get into a car soon. Yeah, we need to make some car content.